of you here this morning so far, those of us in here have either dodged, flu, COVID, strep, and general sick people, or we've had it, or we're about to have it. So I thought I'd preach a message this morning on salvation. <laughs> it is good to have good friends here with us this morning. They're passing through. They were at the park, or at least in this area, Gary and Cheryl Kidd. Just, would you two stand? We're like the kids stand up because, number one, you guys were so little the last time I saw you. It's been 15 years since I've seen you guys or more. Would Gary and Cheryl, would you stand up? I'm embarrassing you on purpose. Go ahead. They are down in Asheboro, North Carolina. Thank you. You may be seated. They are friends of our family from years gone by. Uh, we were on staff together at the church in Northern Virginia. In a nominal way, Gary was my boss because I was the athletic director and the coach, and so every time I'd get a technical foul, he'd have to, oh, you need to calm down, brother, <laughs> as the school administrator there, and uh, he's now down in North Carolina, just a, a wonderful servant. In fact, did we used to sit next to each other in choir for a while? You probably did me in trouble. I did get him in trouble, and so those in choir around me, here, the good thing about being a pastor, Gary, is I've been able to move to the base back there. I got out of the center section and got into the base section until Zach kicked me out of the choir. <laughs> it's good to have them here with us this morning as well. Luke chapter 15 is where we are. We're continuing in our series, Principled Parables. We've picked back up after having some messages on the home through May and June. We looked last week at discipleship at the end of Luke chapter number 14 in the parable there. We've been exhausting or will try to exhaust each of the parables in the gospel of Luke. As we carry this series, it will take us uh, deep into towards the end of the month of August. And so a couple more messages in this particular series. This morning, we're looking at the fact that in verse number two, it says, this man receiveth sinners. And so the message title is he, Christ, receiveth sinners. Read these first two verses with me. We'll pray and jump into the preaching this morning. The Bible says, Then drew near unto him all the publicans and sinners for to hear him. And the Pharisees and scribes murmured, saying, By the way, religion hates it when people are drawn to Jesus Christ. This man receiveth sinners and eateth with them. Hallelujah. Father, help us this morning as we come to the Word of God and study this chapter and see these two very powerful parables. They are teaching us, I believe, one singular principle, and that is the principle of salvation. How you, in heaven, have provided the way of salvation and how the whole process and plan of salvation plays out in our own lives. May we understand the principle this morning so that we, too, can take the message of the good news out into a lost and dying world. Bless us, I pray, in this time together as we worship you through the word of God in Jesus' name. Amen. There may not be a more powerful explanation of who Jesus Christ is and what he does in all of the Bible than what these poor Pharisees and scribes murmured here. Jesus Christ receives sinners. What a wonderful truth this morning. Oh, we've looked at a lot of different principles in the parables to this point. But this morning, it is like putting one right down the middle of the plate for a big-time hitter. This is what a pastor ought to knock out of the park. Luke chapter number 15. The 
parables of Luke 15, Luke 16, and the first part of Luke chapter 17 are all spoken in one sitting if we read Luke's account correctly. The first three, all here in Luke chapter 15, are spoken to the whole crowd or the whole congregation that was gathered together who heard this very murmuring from these very Pharisees and scribes. To the crowd, they are given a response to religion's derision and complaint. Jesus gives a wonderful picture of salvation and the work that he, Christ, would accomplish. In Luke chapter 16, the parable there is on stewardship, in fact, on the unjust steward, and it is spoken specifically to his disciples in chapter 16 and verse 1. If you were to skip over, you would find that the religious crowd heard all of these parables, and it says in chapter 16 and verse 14 that they derided him. They hated what he said. Religion does not like the free relationship that comes through the simple plan of salvation. Amen. Right. The last parable in this sitting is found at the beginning of chapter number 17. It is a parable on service given directly to his apostles. So we find a very narrow or a process of narrowing the crowd. These first three are given to the whole of the congregation. Then it goes to those who are his disciples. Then it goes to those who are the most faithful of his disciples, the 12 apostles themselves. This morning, we're going to tackle all three in Luke 15. So you can tell that I'm not going to be exhaustive on each of the three. Each of them is worthy of their own sermon. Each of them is probably worthy of their own series of sermons in what they teach us. The principle, however, behind all three of these parables is the divine, heavenly, or God view of salvation. How does he see the salvation that he has given to us? If the complaint of religion is that he receives sinners and they nailed it on the head, it is the truth, then God takes time in the person of Jesus Christ to explain to us what that salvation means from his perspective. Jesus effectively replies to the derision of the Pharisees here by saying, yes, I do receive sinners, and once they are saved, I do eat with them fully. You and I, by the way, this morning should be glad for that. Amen. We this morning around this word are still feasting on this. We are still eating with him today because of this. Three words summarize God's <laughs> thoughts on saving the souls of mankind from these parables. Here are the three. I put them at the very head of your outline this morning. Lost, found, and rejoicing. You're going to find that in each of the parables. So they tell us then that the parables are woven together as one long narrative, one story, one principle taught together. Warren Wearsby in his great commentary series says this. These parables reveal that there are two aspects to this salvation. There is God's part. The shepherd seeks the lost sheep, the woman searching for the lost coin. But there is also man's part in salvation for the wayward son to willingly repent and return home. To emphasize but one aspect is to give a false view of salvation for both the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man must both be considered. So how does God receive sinners? First, in our outline, through the seeking of the Son. The Son of God, Jesus Christ, the Good Shepherd, according to John chapter number 10, the chief shepherd, according to Peter in his writing in 1 Peter chapter 5, is the shepherd who seeks the sheep. The Bible says this, beginning in verse number 3, And he spake this parable unto them, saying, 
What man of you, having an hundred sheep, if he lose one of them, does not leave the ninety and nine in the wilderness and go after that which is lost until he find it? And when he hath found it, he layeth it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he cometh home, he calleth together his friends and neighbors, saying unto them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I say unto you that likewise joy shall be in heaven over one sinner that repenteth, more than over ninety and nine just persons which need no repentance. May I make a quick point here. Jesus is not making the statement in that last phrase saying that men don't need to repent. He's simply saying he has come to seek and to save that which is lost. The seeking son of this parable shows us letter A that Jesus Christ himself takes the responsibility for salvation. He's the one that took upon himself the responsibility to save mankind. <laughs> Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4 says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. Note that. You are not blessed because of who you are. You are blessed because of who he is. Amen. He took right. on him the responsibility to save and to redeem us. According as he hath chosen us in him. In who? In Christ before the foundation of the world. That we should be holy and without blame before him in love. We can stand before God the Father in love because of what Jesus Christ did on Calvary. Because he took on him the responsibility of dying for our sin. Seeking and saving our lost souls. Amen. Before the world was founded. Right. God the Son agreed to be the vehicle through which salvation would be provided. The Godhead knew full well that man would sin. They are omniscient after all. He is God after all. And they chose or settled on a plan within their unity to redeem mankind. If you were to go down to verse 7 in Ephesians chapter 1, it says this, in whom, that in whom is Christ, in Christ we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. Because he willingly took the responsibility to die for sin. You and I don't have to. Right. Amen. Later in this very gospel, in Luke chapter 19 and verse 10, the Bible says this, Jesus speaking, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Jesus chose to be our redeemer. Why would he do that? The answer is because he is our creator. You have to understand why he would take on the responsibility as the good and chief shepherd. Why would he assume that role? He could have left us to die. He could have annihilated Adam and Eve with one word from his mouth. He spoke and all things came to be. He could speak and all things could have been undone. But no, he chose to be our redeemer because he is our creator. Colossians chapter 1, verses 12 through 17 teaches this, giving thanks unto the Father which has made us meet or appropriate right before him to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son, in whom, in that Son, we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. You can tell when Paul was writing to these New Testament churches the singular thought of how we are saved was very important to him. It is through Christ. That sounds a lot like Ephesians chapter 1. He goes on, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. 
For by him were all things created. That is, by Jesus Christ were all things created that are in heaven, that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things, and by him all things consist. God is not responsible for our sin, but Jesus willingly took on the responsibility of redeeming us from those sins. In omniscience, he knew when he created that the very act of creating would lead to his death for that which he created. Understand that. Let me say it again. In his omniscience, God, and particularly the person of Jesus Christ, knew when he created that the very act of his creation would lead ultimately to his death for that which he created. He knew this. That's why the writer of Hebrews can pen these words in Hebrews chapter 12 and in verse 2. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Because he is our creator, he created us as faith-based beings. You will put your faith in something. This morning you walked in and all of you put faith in the chairs that you sat on. Did you know that I went around and sold the legs off one of them and glued them back together? <laughs> Say, Pastor, did you just tell a lie in church? Well, you don't know. Now, some kid after church is going to go around and take every single chair and pass it down like You see, every day in our life we exercise faith. What we find here is Jesus Christ exercised his will. Yes, I'm going to create. Yes, I know that Adam is going to choose to depart, but that means I will be their redeemer. I'm not just their creator. I'm the redeemer. He took on the responsibility. He willingly sacrificed. It did not stop him from still creating mankind. He is the author and the finisher of our faith. It is interesting that in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 2, it says, who for the joy that was set before him. We read a lot of rejoicing in Luke chapter number 15. And the truth of the matter is, while the cross was a horrible way to die, the process of going to Calvary, dying for sins, being buried and raised the third day, was a joyful thought because it brought you and I to redemption. What a truth. Not only does he take the responsibility, but letter B, he leads the rejoicing. He leads the rejoicing. It is interesting what the Bible says in verse number five. And when he hath found it, the it is you here. You honestly could write, and when he hath found me, he layeth me on his shoulders rejoicing. What a truth. What a joy. What an excitement there is in that. The rejoicing begins, though, with the shepherd. The shepherd knew the other sheep were safe. He knew what he was coming to do. And as he takes that lamb and puts it on his shoulders and begins his journey back through that dark way to the flock, to the fold, to the safety, to the security, he is rejoicing all the way. I wonder what Jesus sings when you got saved. But he's rejoicing. The Bible says in verse 6, And when he cometh home, he calleth together his friends and neighbors, saying unto them, Rejoice with me! Get a little excited about salvation. You know, the problem for most of Christianity is we're no longer excited about the idea of being saved from our sin. 
You know why? Most of our progressive churches and friends in those places don't really have a distinction between what it means to be saved and what it means to be a sinner. But if you live a holy, sanctified life set apart unto God, you will understand that there's much to rejoice in the salvation of the Lord, and there's much to be glad you're saved from. The shepherd rejoices in verse 5. The under-shepherds, his friends, and the flock rejoice in verse number 6. But in verse number 7, we see it, the whole heavens rejoice. The Bible says, Jesus speaking, I say unto you that likewise joy shall be in heaven over one sinner that repenteth. Do we get excited over one sinner trusting Jesus Christ as their Savior? If we can't get excited about that, then we are going to be in for a rude awakening when we arrive on the shores of glory. God the Son, the good and chief shepherd, seeks to save the lost souls of mankind. In John's gospel, he said this, If I be lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men unto me. We find then the second parable, beginning in verse number 8, is about another person of the Godhead. We find there the searching spirit. <laughs> the Bible continues in verse 8. There's no lack. There's no break. There's no hesitation. The first parable flows into the second. In other words, what Jesus is teaching is one still linear principle about salvation. He says, either, or on the other hand, what woman having ten pieces of silver, by the way, that phrase, that reference of ten pieces of silver, had to do likely with a crown or some kind of uh, jewel-encrusted emblem that a woman was given as a dowry or given in promise of being married to a man, being betrothed to a man. The giving of that was given to her, and the Bible says there would have been, and in uh, the Old Testament we can study in depth, there would have been ten coins there. It's likely one of these ten coins that has perchance or by accident not been knocked off by her, but that has fallen off. It's fallen away. It's like the sheep. It's gone. The woman had nothing to do with its departure, but she has everything to do with its finding. We continue reading. If she lose one piece, doth not light a candle, sweep the house, and seek diligently till she find it. And when she hath found it, she calleth her friends and her neighbors together, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the piece which I had lost. Likewise, I say unto you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner that repenteth. The woman here depicts the working of the Spirit of God, who was a full participant in the creation and is an active partner in our salvation. He is the one who regenerates us. He's the one that makes us new. It is the work of Jesus Christ on Calvary that does the, redeem the redeeming. It is the work of the Spirit of God that does the regenerating of us. Adam freely chose to depart from God, and that damned our race. It doomed us to separation, to death, and to hell. Adam was lost, dead in his trespasses and sins. Like the woman, God did not desire for the coin to be lost, but it was lost. In Genesis chapter 3, we find God comes searching for Adam in the garden. Very similarly to this passage here, the Bible says in chapter 3 of Genesis in verse 6, And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took the fruit thereof, and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her. And he did eat, and the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig 
together and made themselves aprons. Notice the next verse. And they heard the voice of the Lord walking in the garden. By the way, let me pause for a second. That voice is a person. It's not just like an echo down through a valley. It is a person that came walking and talking and meeting with them in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. Boy, it's interesting. We find the presence of the Lord there, and Jesus makes reference to the presence of the Lord in heaven when a sinner gets saved in this very portion of this parable. And the Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, Where art thou? And he said, I heard thy voice in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he, that is God, said, Who told thee thou was naked? Who exposed you in this way? God said, Hast thou eaten of the tree whereof I commanded thee that thou shouldest not eat? You see, folks, God searched for lost Adam just like this woman searched for her lost coin. The woman was, was searching for this lost coin. She wasn't absent-minded. She wasn't at fault, yet the coin was lost. She went fully into the finding and resetting mode, <laughs> getting that coin back to its proper place and its proper position. Sometimes we read Genesis chapter 3, and we assume that it's God is coming down to judge them. God is coming down to bring justice. That's what we find in the garden. But God loves them. The initiation of the plan of redemption was now in full effect. That which he knew before the foundation of the world would play out was beginning to play out. And the searching was beginning. So we find letter A, there's a diligent search. This isn't a haphazard, if you want me, you come to me, search. This is a diligent search from Genesis chapter number 3 and quote. In our parable, the woman lights a lamp and sweeps the house until she finds the lost coin. The Greek word translated diligently describes, it's described this way, a carefully ordered search process. It is a carefully ordered search. In other words, there is a meticulous pattern that is followed to find this coin. It is not just a, well, if we find them, we find them. No, there is a plan that is put in motion. And it is the spirit of God, the mind of God, that ensures that this plan comes to full effect. The picture is vivid and powerful. God, in Genesis 3, could not just turn around and give full salvation to Adam. Well, let me introduce you to Jesus. Jesus, why don't you climb up on a cross and right here in front of Adam and Eve die? You say, well, well he could have done that. No, he couldn't have done that. There needed to be a light and a lamp lit. There needed to be a search process engaged in it. What Jesus is telling us in the principle, or in the parable, excuse me, is this principle. This process of redemption is very detailed. It's very specific. It's not something you enter haphazardly. Jesus did not step into the cool of the morning, find Adam naked and afraid, and then there die upon that old rugged cross. This carefully ordered search began as soon as Adam fell. The lamp of God's word. I'm glad for the song the choir sang this morning. The Spirit of God uses the scriptures to explain to us the will, work, and way of God. The lamp of God's word was lit, and the Spirit of God began progressively revealing more and more of how deep and how exhaustive 
God's redemptive plan would be. The sweeping that Jesus alludes to in the parable has the idea of scouring the house in both a meticulous and methodical process. Friends, you can't read the Old Testament and not come away thinking God had a very meticulous, methodical process of explaining who we are and who he is and what salvation means. When we read this portion of this parable, we have to understand that God searches the heart. How does he search the heart? Through his word. And it's the spirit of God that dives deep into our hearts through his word. The process was methodical. It was meticulous. If we were to continue reading in Genesis 3 and verse 21, the Bible there says this. Unto Adam also and to his wife did the Lord make coats of skins and clothe them. And the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become as one of us to know good and evil. And now lest he put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life. Pause for a second. That is the cross of Calvary. Come back in a couple Wednesday nights and Edward's going to preach about the trees in the Bible. I've looked at that for a long time. You can follow the tree of life from the garden all the way to the very last chapter of the book of Revelation, chapter 22. There is a tree of life and Jesus hung and died on it. But God says, unless he takes his hand and takes of the tree of life and live forever, we can't let him live forever in his sinful state. The redemptive plan, the meticulous sweeping and cleaning process has to take place. Therefore, the Lord God sent them forth from the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. So he drove out the man and he placed at the east of the garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. If you were to continue reading in that passage, it would tell you that he killed animals, clothed them with their skin. What God does through the process of lighting the lamps through his word, so he illuminates what it means to be saved. He said, blood must be shed for sins to be paid for. As the Old Testament continues then to unfold under the hand of the Spirit of God, he reveals that God will save by faith in the person of Abraham. He has an unachievable standard in the law. And when you read the law, especially those that get lost in Leviticus, you realize, oh, man, I can't do all of that. And the answer is, no, you can't. Neither can I. But the law is our schoolmaster, Paul would later tell us in the book of Galatians, to bring us to faith in Jesus Christ. There's an unachievable standard that is set before us in the law of Moses. But God makes a way for atonement in the sacrifices in that same law. In the book of Exodus, we would find the Spirit reveals just how God can pass over our sins. And in so doing, sets us in, a place, uh, in place a pattern of salvation. It is by applying the blood to our lives personally that the death angel passes over us. Then through the Red Sea, he shows the process of sanctification. We're not saved through our baptism. Baptism identifies us with Christ that we have Believe the Passover. We believe the Lamb of God that taketh away the sins of the world. Both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, we are told that the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, searching and seeking for man, strives with mankind. In Genesis 6 and verse 3, the Bible says this, And the Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for that he also is flesh, or fallen, carnal. In John 16 and verse 17, Jesus says this, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is expedient or best for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter, that is the Holy Spirit, will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. And when he's come, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. What he did in the Old Testament, he does in the New Testament. He convicts us of our sin. 
the spirit-inspired holiness in the Old Testament believers, and he does the same in the New Testament believers. Psalm 143, verse 10, the Bible says, Teach me to do thy will, for thou art my God. Thy spirit is good. Lead me into the land of uprightness. Romans chapter 8, verses 9 through 11 say, But ye are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If so, be that the spirit of God dwell in you. Now, if any man have not the spirit of Christ, he is none of his. And if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken or make alive your mortal bodies by his spirit that dwelleth in you. The Holy Spirit of God is fully invested in searching out and leading souls to faith in Jesus Christ. How much so? We find the very last few verses of the whole Bible say this in Revelation 22 and verse 17. And the Spirit and the bride, that's you and I, members of the church this morning, say come. And let him that heareth say come. And let him that is a thirst come. And whosoever will let him take of the water of life freely. It is Christ who came seeking and saving that which was lost. But it is the Spirit of God who presently searches, tries, and teaches the hearts and minds of men to draw them to an understanding of who Jesus is. The preaching of a pastor on a Sunday morning is not in the power of the pastor. The preaching of the pastor this morning is in the power and in the ability of the Spirit of God. The power or impact that it has in your life as you leave this morning and depart these walls. This church going out into the world, taking these truths out with them, that is the working of the Spirit of God. He is searching with a light. He is shining. He is searching and he's sweeping methodically and meticulously your life clean, free of sin. But if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ, his chief uh, uh, function is to search for you, that lost coin, and to draw you to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Letter B, we find it is a delightful recovery. I mean, it's a diligent search, make no mistake. But boy, it is a delightful recovery. Just like Jesus, the shepherd, the woman or the spirit of God in this instance, in this parable and principle, says this. Rejoice with me in the middle of verse 9. For I have found the peace which I had lost. Verse 10, likewise I say unto you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner that repented. The woman rejoices. She calls her friends to rejoice with her. Friends, God is overjoyed when a sinner is found. When his grace is received, it makes him glad. It is worth noting as well that the heavenly rejoicing here is in the presence of the angels. Make no mistake, I believe the angels rejoice when a sinner is saved. There's other passages in the Gospels that teach us this. But in this parable, the the presence of the angels tells us it's not the angels rejoicing, it's whomever they're observing. And who does heaven observe? Jesus, the Father, the Spirit of God. The whole of heaven is looking to them. And when a sinner gets saved, they all say, Woo! This is good news. I just woke up some of you. <laughs> I'm sure in heaven they say it louder than that. I have no doubt that the gathered saints who have put their trust in Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit's prompting and guiding 
are rejoicing. But the rejoicing, I believe, that is mentioned here is done by God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. The word presence here literally in the original language means before them. It must be understood that God rejoices openly in the free will decision of a man, woman, boy, or girl who will trust in him over their own flesh, over their own desires, over this world, over everything that would keep them from going into a relationship with him. When one freely says no to that and yes to him, it is a joy to our heavenly Father, to the Son of God and to the Spirit. We continue then from the seeking son and the searching spirit to finally, in number three, the sovereign father. This final parable shows that God will not save those who will not come to their end, realize their condition, and choose of their own will to repent and return to the father. This final parable is often called the parable of the... Well, that sounds like a good subject. <laughs> it's the parable of the prodigal son. Good. Some of you heard the other mumblers and decided to mumble louder. Good. Well done. I get it. I've been there. Is that a good title for this parable? Not within the context. We should call this the parable of the loving, patient father. That's what the parable is about. That's the principle behind it. That is not to say there's not application in the prodigal lessons for us to apply in our daily living. But the core principle, the chief teaching of this passage is that it is yoked inextricably low, inseparably yoked to these other two parables. If the son is seeking and the spirit is searching, then what is the father doing? And the answer is he's waiting. He's wanting. He's looking and he's loving. Notice first with me, the sovereign father is patient with his son in this parable. Verse 11, the Bible says, and here it is, I told you many times I have to put my glasses on. When I read long passages, I have to put them on now. In verse number 11, we begin, and it said, A certain man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falleth to me. And he divided of them his living. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together and took a journey into a far country, and there wasted his substance with riotous living. And when he had spent all, there arose a mighty famine in that land, and he began to be in want. And he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into the fields to feed swine. He would have fain have filled his belly with the husks that the swine did eat, and no man gave unto him. And when he came to himself, he said, How many hired servants of my father's have bread enough and to spare? And I perish with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and will say unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee, and am no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of thy hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But when he was yet a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And his son said unto him, Father, against heaven and in thy sight, and am no more worthy to be called thy son. But the father said unto his servant, Bring forth the best robe, and put, on, put it on him, and put a ring on his hand, and shoes on his feet, and bring hither the fatted calf, and kill it, and let us eat, and be merry. For this my son was dead, and is alive again. He was lost, and is found. They began to be merry. They began to rejoice. Now his elder son was in the field, 
And he came and drew nigh to the house and heard music and dancing. And he called to one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said unto him, Thy brothers come, and thy father has killed the fatted calf because he hath received him safe and sound. And he was angry and would not go in. Therefore came his father out and entreated him. And he answering said unto his father, Lo, these many years do I serve thee, neither transgressed I at any time thy commandment, and yet thou never gavest me a kid that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as thy son was come, which hath devoured thy living with harlots, thou hast killed for him the fatted calf. And he said unto his son, Thou art ever with me, and all that I have is thine. By the way, that phrase was a phrase of potentiality, meaning everything that I have is potentially and actually yours, if you would just claim it. Verse 32, it was meet, it was right, it was appropriate that we should make merry and be glad, that we would rejoice. For this thy brother was dead and is alive again, and was lost and is found. <laughs> Can I tell you something from reading this parable? And picturing the sovereignty of the Father as he waits and wants the sinner to come to him. Sovereignty allows for patience. Sovereignty just means that God's in control. By the way, do you know why we struggle sometimes with patience here in this temporal realm? Because we're not in control. But it is a mark of a true believer in Jesus Christ to exercise self-control, trusting in his sovereignty. His patience with his sons begins, number one there in your notes, through rebellion. Well, there was rebellion. Effectively, what this boy did is he came to his father and said, Dad, I want everything that's mine. I wish you were dead. I have no earthly idea how my dad would respond if I said that. Probably not very well. I know how my mother would respond. I know how my sister would respond. I know how my wife might even respond if I was that callous, that cruel, that hateful. But that's effectively what this boy did. He said, I don't care about you. I don't want you part of my life at all. I just want what's mine, and I'm gone. I want my freedom. And the father patiently says, okay. It doesn't challenge God's sovereignty when people challenge God. Right. Understand that this morning. And there are a whole lot of people that go through a whole lot of phases in their Christian walk who will challenge God on every front. But the challenging of God does not bother God. It's just going to bother you. It's just going to create heartache for you on this earth. He was patient with his rebellious son. But he's also patient in his sovereignty in the repentance of that son. In verses 17 through 24, there's a wonderful picture of how we are saved. The process of how we come to God by salvation. By the way, in saving faith as we come to God, there is saving grace that comes to us. That is fully pictured in verses 17 through 24. The father never presses the issue. He never chases the boy. His grace was clear, but so too were his terms. If you're leaving, you're leaving. But if you want to come back, there's a way that you come back to me. You're going to have to come to yourself. You're going to have to come to me. In verse number 17, the boy realized ultimately his condition without his father, without God. He then made a decision based upon that condition in verses 18, 19, and 20. The decision was, it's better to be a servant in my father's house than out here in this jerk field. I mean, that jerk was saying, hey, you're hungry? Eat what the pigs are eating. 
By the way, that's what the devil, the cruel taskmaster of this world, will do to us when we follow him in our rebellion. Right. He will feed us husks. Right. Ultimately, we find in the repentance of his patience, endurance, and kindness, the father restored him to his position. The boy realized his condition. The boy then made a decision, and it was the father who restored him to his position. By the way, the boy came to his father and said, I don't know how this is going to go. I hope it goes well. And the father said, it's going to go fine because I have compassion. That's why the word compassion is used in that way. <coughs> Jesus uses it so that we would understand the principle of how when we come by faith to the gracious offer of salvation, how God moves towards us in all of his persons. The two are already seeking, and the third, the father, who is the justice, is very compassionate. He was patient through rebellion. He was patient in repentance. But third there in your outline, he was patient through resistance as well. I've often wondered why the story didn't end in verse 24. But it doesn't. The story goes on. And the answer is because we have to understand a great number of people who will miss simple salvation. Verses 25 through 32 is directed at those who were murmuring against him in verse number 2. That man receiveth sinners, and he eateth with them. And Jesus, at the end of the parable on salvation, to the whole of the congregation says, you guys are going to miss it. They're the older son. Hey, we did everything right. Hey, we were at church every Sunday. Hey, we made sure we combed our hair, brushed our teeth, we put on our finest. We made sure the kids didn't squall or squirm during church, and we made sure it was right. We did everything right. But did you ask Jesus to save you from your sins? Oh, no, we forgot that part. Well, then you are this group. In verses 25 through 32. The resistance from the older son is not to his younger brother, but to the simple fact of what salvation is, trusting God's word. This older son, it would seem, missed the whole point of forgiveness. The son never openly sinned, never wantonly rebelled, yet the provision that the younger son received was also what the older brother needed. Right. The older brother needed to have the same realization as the younger did. What was that realization in verse number 21 in the latter half of it? He says, I have sinned against heaven and in thy sight and am no more worthy to be called thy son. We have to come to a point where we realize there is no good in us. There's none that doeth good. No, not one. The younger son realized there was no entitled position. The older brother never came to that realization. The father said effectively, what I have is yours, but you must claim it. Even righteous people need salvation. Mm -hmm. Even good people need to get saved. Mm -hmm. Salvation is not earned by your good deeds, nor is it by your inheritance or your holding close to good morals and ethics. Salvation is received by acting on what we know. We are sinners. And God the Father provides redemption in salvation through Jesus Christ alone. That's it. Right. The Father here, interestingly enough, this is the patience we see, does not drive the older son away. But rather drives him to recognize what he must do to be saved. Sadly, the self-righteous Pharisee never seems to understand the principles 
that is laid out in this parable. The sovereign father is seen in his patience towards his son, but letter B, it is seen in his purpose through salvation. We'll be quick and, we'll be quick and we will close this morning with these final three thoughts, and they are these. His purpose through salvation in these three parables is that he gives us freedom. He gives us freedom. You may or may not be saved this morning, but the choice is yours to be saved. You may be the self-righteous son thinking that you don't need salvation because you're a pretty good person. May I tell you this morning, you need Christ just like I needed Jesus Christ so many years ago. You may be in here this morning and be the prodigal and you just wandered in aimlessly. I'm glad you're here. If you're the prodigal, you need to understand how desperately salvation is needed in your life. The point is, cho the choice is yours. God did not make Adam a robot. He gave Adam the freedom to take and to taste of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And Adam acted in his free will. You and I this morning must exercise that same free will to trust Jesus Christ as our Savior. If you do not, then you may exercise your free will to reject Jesus Christ. But either way, that does not bother God's sovereignty. He is offered through the Son and his seeking, through the Spirit and his wooing or searching, he, as a sovereign God, has said, the offer is yours, but you have to take it. He gives us freedom. Number two, he grants forgiveness. Verse 22, if it's not underlined in your Bible, you should underline it and you should star it. Because this is what we get in forgiveness. It's great. There's three things, and I put them as a sub-point or a sub-thought underneath this note in your outline. He gives us a robe, he gives us a ring, and he gives us a reward. The father orders the best of his robes to be brought and be put on the son. This robe, by the way, would cover all the stains and all the dirt of the pig pen. Isn't that wonderful? No one could ever see or smell what he had been into because the robe of the father, the robes of righteousness that come in Jesus Christ were placed upon him. Imagine a servant walking up who had not been there when the son returned home, seeing the boy from behind in the father's robe. He would naturally mistake the boy for his father because he had his robes on. This robe served to erase all the visible signs of the boy's sinful past. Philippians chapter 3 and verse 9 teaches us this principle, and be found in him, Paul writes. Not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. We receive a robe when we receive forgiveness. But secondly, we receive a ring. The ring was a symbol of sonship, of authority. The one with the ring could speak on behalf as the Father. The one with the ring had access to all that belonged to the Father. The one with the Father's ring was in the position of great privilege. Paul tells us this in Romans 8 and verse 17. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God. And joint heirs with Christ. In other words, you as an heir would receive the ring with the seal and the signet to make your mark. If so be that we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together. The boy received a robe, he received a ring, and then he received shoes. And I had no idea how to make an R out of shoes. And some of you people are just nuts about my alliteration. So I put a reward. I mean, who wants to walk around barefoot? We do live in Kentucky, so some of us are natural. But they got a reward. The father 
slaves and servants went around barefoot. The reward, the extra benefit to this boy was, look, you are no longer servants. You are my son. You are my friend. Jesus in John chapter 15 says, if you do what I command you, you're no longer my servants, but you are my friend. You're in fellowship with me. That's the reward. Number three, it's not only that he gives us freedom and grants us forgiveness, but he guarantees us fellowship. God's purpose is not only freedom and forgiveness, but fellowship. Once the relationship is restored, the fellowship flows openly. The fattest, the choicest, the best of the calves was slaughtered. And a grand feast was made. We read in this passage, the shepherd rejoiced in finding the sheep. The woman rejoiced in finding the coin. The father is married, glad and rejoicing at the return of his son. That, my friend, is salvation. That's it. So when the Pharisees murmured, he receiveth sinners. Yes, he does. And if you've received Jesus Christ as your Savior this morning, you should be, of all people, most glad. The principle of salvation in these parables is simple. God graciously seeks us, but we must penitently return for the relationship and fellowship to be realized with God once again. Have you done that? 